Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. Okay. All right, we're ready. Let's get some more history. So now we're doing the people's Ooh, history. Oh, we're smoking our weed. Oh, do you want yeah, some yeah, yeah. I love smoking weed. There should be, there's that there, there's another joint here. Yeah, if you want another joint The too. popcorn has been medicated. Said, so they're pat treats. He said the other day, of <laughs> bite my tongue, he said gum my tongue, and I've never thought that that would be what he would need. Like, I just never got, and I was just like, God damn it, pat treats. Yeah, no, yeah but you missed the part where he said they were pat treats. No, that works too. Sorry. They're not cat treats, they're pat treats. <laughs> Patrick is a cat. I am pretty much cat on the inside, and this is my podcast, Recyclables! <laughs> I, uh, we're doing part two, kind of the people's history of stand-up comedy. Uh, I am joined, as I was in part one, by my dear, awesome, great, amazing, other superfluous adjective friends, Rochelle Cotier. Cotier. Cotier, yeah, there we go. And Dahlia Bellet. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, if you, uh, I, I recommend listening to part one. I don't know why you would see a part two and be like, I'm going to start there, but whatever. Maybe shuffles your thing. Um, we're going to, we're going to kind of, I have, I, I discussed how Mr. Wayne Fetterman has a book. He has a class uh, and he has a podcast. And I have. He talks about the history of stand up comedy. And I have some notes, as it were, some, some recycled takes uh, I wanted to discuss with my friends and explore. Um, I left. In his book, he discusses that stand-up comedy does not start actually with Mark Twain. It starts with the gentleman Artemis Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I, is a much cooler name. Charles Brown. I don't know. I kind of like Charles Brown, too. I mean, it's... it's I feel like that's pretty plain, but yeah. Artemis Ward Artemis out. Ward. That... I just have a mistrust of anyone who chooses the name Artemis. I'm not sure why. No, that's fair. I think it's just too cool of a name. I'm like, who do you think you are? Because okay. if you... So you don't like trans men? No, just a bad person. Because trans men always have those kind of names. <laughs> I guess it's more just comes from a place of jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not that I have any problem with my name, but my parents told me if I was a boy, they were going to name me Jay. And I'm like, fuck you! Yeah. You guys are the worst. Isn't Artemis a goddess of the hunt? I don't yeah, know. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So that, that translates a little bit to me, though. That Exactly. And she's... Anyway, anyway. That makes it even hotter. Hell yeah. I would absolutely give a blowjob to Artemis Ward, just based on the name. You're you're not going to want to after I finish, like, two sentences. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's history. It's assholes all the way down. I left out one real, real super crucial part to where Artemis Ward heard his jokes at that he decided to take on the road himself. He heard his jokes being done at a minstrel show. Uh, and if you're not in... I, I need to admit, I had to recycle my understanding of what minstrel shows were for this. Because I had initially thought it was activities enslaved people had done that white people took up for fun and profit the way we do. Because yeah. we're just fucking the worst. It turns out it's a little bit... It's, it's still fucking awful, but it's mm-hmm. more nuanced in its awfulness. Uh, this information I got... From the University of uh, Florida University, Florida is a surprise hero repeatedly in the recyclables. They That's had, disturbing. They had they had the best ideas for how to handle convenience stores, like city owned, and uh, they have to do certain things legally, or they're not allowed to operate. Like they have to have two people between four p.m. and eight a.m. and mm. it cuts down on robberies. Makes and like, sense. 
So it's, it's, Florida has these weird things where it's like, it's almost like the people in charge are fucked, not the people. Like the people are fucked, but the people in charge are fucked up. Maybe that's yeah, a. That's honestly what I think of a lot when people say we just need to get rid of Florida. I'm like, hey, do you fully understand that there are a lot of people who can't leave there and live there and do not like the way it is and want to make it better? Like, we can't punish them. Do too. you also understand that? I was born in Florida and fuck Florida. No, that's fair too. I oh, I mean, fuck Florida, fuck Montana, fuck yeah, all fuck of them. <laughs> but I know people there who are good people and I don't want bad things to happen to them. So I don't exactly, want to Exactly, which is them. why we need to donate money to get those people out oh, of the shit states. I, I, I would like to float an idea that I tell people all the time. I think as, 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 a, as a species, humans should all agree, all right, cool. Whatever systems are in place are in place. America's white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, cool, right? But once every seven years, everyone has permission to just go where they think they'd have it best. Yeah. So if you're like, hey, that that system is perfect for me, I'm going to, like, personally me, I'm going to go to Amsterdam or, like, someplace that has weed and prostitution and, like, all the fun stuff and, like... So Florida. Yeah. Yeah, Patrick. (laughs) Wow. I meant meant decriminalized and regulated in a nice liberal sense. Boo. <laughs> um, I mean, you, Portland. You, Portland has all those things. I'm just saying. It sounds like, and I know these are antiquated terms. You want the first world version of Florida? Yes, I do. I too totally. I, I know that first world. I want. I want the less. I want the least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Global North, global South. Even though that's still bad. That's still fucked like, up. Why is there not a good way to have that conversation? Um, successful colonialist and. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of colonial settlers, that's a little bit of what happens to create minstrel. That's exactly what happens to create minstrel shows. We discussed before on the podcast how there is a vacuum that's created that pushes down minorities uh, in the middle class that allows them to kind of rise up and fill it. Uh, This begins in earnest in the early 1800s, and this is when minstrel shows begin. A thing that's important to note for the audience is that even though freedom of the press and whatnot is on the books... It's not always reliable. Like, during the second president, I think it's John Adams, uh, it's it's illegal to print anything negative about the government. Oh, yeah, the Alien and Sedition Acts. Mm. I remember that. Yeah, and there's, there's other times when it's like, there, there's a bunch of examples where it's not appropriate for the middle class to speak up against their, air quotes, betters, right? But they, we've also discussed on the podcast about how they're mad about slavery when they're mad about it, and they, they took our job sense. They're, yeah. they're, they're fucking idiots. But their, their, their notion isn't to be upset. They're, they're upset at enslaved people instead of upset that people are enslaved. So when they start creating art forms, they need to navigate the fact that they're trying to mock their betters without their betters knowing it, but they want to feel superior. They need to... Fucking, and that's where minstrel shows come about. Is you make fun of the planter class, and so you make fun of your rich people, and then you get a feel. Sorry, feeling real upset about this, but you get to feel empowered because you're mocking somebody else, right? And so that's that's where what happens is one of the main features is there is a comedy presentation while musical act set up. That same frontman system that comes about in the club system starts back in minstrel shows because there's somebody doing jokes while a juggling act is set up or a 
piano act or whatever. And there's also a line where... Flaming ev- hoops. Yeah, and there's a, a, a... I can't remember the exact name of the thing, but there's a thing where everyone comes front and forward and tells a joke and then goes back into the audience. And it's a whole... Or not the audience, sorry, the, the chorus. The chorus. Line. That's yeah. interesting, though. But, but it's to, it's because, again, there's no TV, there's jack shit to do, so of course you're gonna go watch whatever the fuck there is. Mm-hmm. It's not an excuse, but the, the foundation and creation of it is you, you're middle class and you're butt hurt that you're not doing better, and you're butt hurt that the people that are in another false premise that white people in the North have at this time is that black people are getting free room and board and they get a, they can be as lazy as they want. Yeah, and like, yeah. it's just, it's just fucking sunshine and daisies Which and boy, rainbows. Is that yeah. fucking wild. Yeah. And uh, I love all this. I just, <laughs> I fucking love all this. So the song of the South. So Artemis yeah. Ward goes to one of these and sees <clears throat> his jokes being done at a minstrel show, and it's like, man, somebody else is making money off my act, and they're they're copying. I should I should actually I need to I wanted to clarify something for the general premise. Minstrel shows then evolve after a period right before the Civil War to be this kind of abolitionist presentation of what life on the plantation is like. But it's it's again still coming from a white supremacist viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So, like, and it's and it's. The the major, the really fucked up thing is it perpetuates false stereotypes. It makes people think the the lazy slave is the thing. It makes them think that, like, the the northern landowners are really nice to their slaves, and we just, we just they just not appreciate, like, just all their, it reinforces their belief. It's a thing we talk about a lot on the podcast, where even if it doesn't make it normal, it makes it seem like it's normal. So I don't know what normalization is, <laughs> like, exactly, but, like, that's what ends up happening. And when the abolitionists take over, they're not coming from a place of, like, we need to help people be free. They're coming from a place of, like, white people are better than this, or America is built on something else, or white people are losing jobs because of this. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like how people responded to Trump getting elected and shit going wrong. It's like... This isn't the real America. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it spoiler is. alert. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, the vein of, that's the vein of what it is. And then afterwards what happens is it becomes enslaved people or formerly enslaved people's only kind of acceptable means of art. Mm-hmm. Because before, when the pre-antebellum or whatever, pre-Civil War, if you have a, a black person participating in the act, then you get a little bit of authenticity. But everybody is still putting on the, the charcoal or whatever. I can't yeah. remember uh, what the exact phrasing is. But they, they everybody is putting it up. Even darker skinned people are putting on darker shades. Like, it's... it's I, I have plans to do an episode on the history of white supremacy at some point. Like, all the way back to the Spanish Empire because they had codes about it and shit. But it, it reinforces more of these false stereotypes. But by the time black people are, air quotes, freed... It's the only art form that white people will let them do because you're not allowed. Yeah, you're not allowed to act because that's a white people thing. You're not allowed to have your own music because that's a white people thing. You're not allowed to X, Y, or Z because us whites did it. Like, so that's also (laughs) that's also when vaudeville starts because they leave the minstrel shows behind but just do the same things without black people. And it becomes a way it's it's. 
like it, it's a gross analogy. I'm sorry to the child that I know listens to some of these on and off, but it's it's like a rape victim being forced to reenact their their assault yeah. in a real way because you're you're supposed to pretend Literally, like in yeah, some cases. and you're yeah. supposed to pretend like everything is hunky dory. And it's not. So it's, and it's this fucked up thing where it's like, well, if they're smiling and laughing, things must be fine. Um, like, we need yeah. to pause for a second to make sure that we address that you said hunky dory. I, I just wanted to. Every once in a while, my, my native whiteness <laughs> really no, comes it out. It comes out beautifully. There's two things that you do that I love. There's those kind of things. And I gave him shit because he was doing air quotes talking to me. And I was like, the people at home that can't hear you air quoting. So yeah. now he goes, quote, <laughs> or air quote, and I love it. I just want to make sure you do. <laughs> so, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so Artemis Ward uh, sees this and is like, ooh, what, I, can't, I can't let other people make money. I gotta make money. America! <laughs> mm. And so um, after, but after Mark Twain does it, it becomes something, it, the history of stand-up is oftentimes somebody seeing somebody making money doing something and being like, oh, I can do that. Because that's what Twain does to Artemis Ward, right? And that's what happens to a lot of people afterwards. Stand-up exists in, like I said, that Catskill range, and it exists in general as this MC duty. Uh, what I wanna, what I wanna draw, <laughs> MC duty. <laughs> the shittiest MC. What? It would be unfair to expect us not to laugh at that. Okay, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's also in those in those Catskill acts in those acts. Those old acts, you'll notice there's a lot of racism, of course, but there's a lot of uh, uh, immigrant-styled racism. And part of that is because a lot of the people drawn to it are immigrants. Because if you, you don't have a fam- familial connection, you don't have a, a uh, uh, local network, if you can't get a job at the factory, you need something to make money, maybe you learn some jokes about the other people and you improve your situation in the white supremacist hierarchy by being like, oh, I'll make fun of the Italians because I'm Scottish. Or I'm Italian, so I'll make fun of the French or whatever. I don't. Unfortunately, French people have been considered white for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I. I also want to check to kind of clear the crap taste out of our mouth for just a minute. Another thing that's very common throughout American history. It's this is an anecdotal PTP personal belief. I think the other thing that motivates stand-up comedy, like a conspiracy theory, if you will, is the fact that con artists are routinely going through the country and providing entertainment for money. People know that you're a con artist a lot of the time, and they give you the dollar because, like I said, there's no TV, there's no radio. Like, fuck yeah, I'll watch a guy huck snake oil for a buck that I'm not going to buy because maybe he'll have a cool thing. Yeah. And he's he's like, if I sell... Or I'll watch this guy steal my dollar in an interesting way. Yeah, Yeah. and so, and there's there's a certain element of that that's also available throughout all all of American history, in addition to those, that Lidocene era of lectures and whatnot. And and pre-revolutionary war, a lot of what combines America, the colonies, is the fact that there's a tradition of these kind of like revivals that have a, a, a ministral aspect in ministral in the the ministry yeah, yeah. Oh, sense the of the word way, yeah. yeah and so but they're also there's going to be speakers and musicians and you're again going to give a dollar because fuck it all a dollar is worth my night right and so the these two things I think both minstrel shows and the history of con artistry and like flim flam mim combine to make the perfect thing to meld into stand-up because you have these pre-written jokes and personas 
in both cases, and you've got an act that you want to prepare, and you've kind of got a setup, delivery, and punchline, and you only want to get it done in a certain amount of time. So it, it just seems to me, at the very least, that some of the roots of stand-up is very much con men going around and being like, buy the snake oil! I mean, in the amount of people in stand-up who have the wobbliest of moral compasses really speaks to the con artist nature of the... Yeah, I think that's part of why it is. And then when the when the cat skills era comes along, you're you're hiring a lot of immigrants because white air quote white people the the people that aren't immigrants so French Americans English Americans yeah. whatever whatever your bullshit system the is. quote unquote native blood yeah yeah so they're they're less inclined to want to do these lower class forms of art such as comedy. You can deliver maybe a model. You can just go be an actor if you want to be funny and be in plays that are funny. I love how this definitely speaks to the still active disdain people have for stand-up. And we ourselves have for stand-up. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're we're doing the crappiest thing. Yeah, Yeah. And and these are the roots just as... I I don't think uh, Mr. Fetterman has a bad idea of things. I think he's teaching a college course and he needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of nuance he misses. Like like the fact that like immigrants are going to be drawn to this, right? And also disenfranchised people, disabled people, people on the fringes of society are going to be drawn to this. Mobs, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're... it's a class thing a little bit, and it's also like a circumstantial thing, and it's it's a weird melding of, of there's a variety of things that aren't just, well, rich people had clubs and a guy showed up to tell jokes. There's there's a whole intricate history under that of people. And what ends up really forming is you have this mainstream that Southern is... Southern madams were also notoriously funny. That's that's where Richard Pryor like yeah. apparently learned a lot of his stuff was from his mom or his grandma or I, I don't know his early biography. Think about how much you had to diffuse potentially violent situations yeah. in the way that America has treated sex workers exactly. like, for its entire existence. Humor is goes so fucking far in diffusing violence, especially among like some someone whose masculinity has been challenged in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. And that's that is kind of I think why in in the early, there's this era between like the nineteen, like nineteen ten and like nineteen thirty ish. That's kind of blurry on the history of stand up, and I think it's because it's kind of occurring at the same time as like anarchist meetings and socialist meetings and all these things that will eventually become taboo. But they have like this beat poetry origin, yeah. and if I can, if I can make fun of what's going on. I can make it easier for people. Like, my, my thing has always been, if I can laugh at the darkness, it's easier for me to go in the darkness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's easier for me to deal with my shit. And I think some of that comes out, like like we were discussing off mic, I think some of the roots of Gil Heron and Lenny Bruce are the same thing of these Oh, absolutely. Like, Allen Ginsberg's poetry, if you listen to his readings, are frequently hilarious. And it's done so on purpose because, uh, as you mentioned, Rochelle, it's a it's a it's a weapon. I always think of words as a toolkit, and like you can use them to harm, you can use them to fix, you can use them to do a number yeah. of things. And these people are aware of it, but there's there's this mainstream of people getting on radio, people getting into what will eventually become clubs and TV and all that. And there's this underground that occurs. It's much more kind of our environment, I would say, of of a town by town basis. Um, I'm famous. No, you are. That's why I put you on here. Bump up my <laughs> I, you're my key to success. I am pit riding you to the bank. 
So the the other, the other thing I want to touch, like I want to respond to also the nature of the club scene as it comes about, because the real the real kind of the story of the club scene that is created in eventually the eighties, uh, it comes about because those diner hall places that existed back in like the teens and twenties, they went away. They became something else. They became the venue existed, but new art forms moved yeah. in, new commodities okay. moved in from a business sense. And the problem is, as the decades go on, they kind of whittle down costs in a sense. So you start off with this orchestral era mm-hmm. where people are there, and there's a bunch of musical acts in addition to the host, and then there's clowns, and there's jugglers, and there's X, Y, and Z. But you have to pay each one of those people, and you have to hope you get enough audience or enough rebroadcast or sponsors or whatever to to make the money back. So you start saying. All right, we don't need the clowns and jugglers. We just want the the, music, the the singers to accompany the orchestra and the MC to introduce them. And then you're like, well, why do we have an orchestra if we have a singer? They can just bring their own instrument, right? And then basically, like, the rock clubs become the disco era, which is just mm-hmm. people and a turntable and whatnot. And, and a lot of cocaine. And a lot of cocaine. So much cocaine. And that's another influence. Thank you, guys. You fucking yes. Mwah. Because that's the other hidden... That was going to be the next thing I mentioned. Because you have clubs emptying out from disco. And in my opinion, it's it's not in Fetterman's. This is my anecdotal opinion. We've all met and or been on cocaine. I have. I've met, but not been on it. I, I've... Friday, it doesn't work. I'm just, I, I'm just like, this is a pretty sunset. Cool. I'm I've done a lot cocaine. of cocaine. Okay. But, so, <laughs> but I've also. So I, I'll go ahead and judge you if you miss. But I've also been swept up in cocaine energy. I'm a follower. Okay. We all know this about my <laughs> life. You guys got something fun? Let's fucking go. All right. But you, you have these clubs emptying out and you do a good show. You know, you, you know the high of being on stage and coming off. And then you do coke with your friends and you're like, we should do this all the time. We should set up a business like this and we should have one of these here that's all the time that's open like this and we should fucking do it, man. And so you Oof. open up a comedy club in Des Moines, Idaho, Idaho or whatever. I'm Iowa. Yeah. Idaho. Yeah. You, but, but. Pick a For all state. Intents and purposes, Idaho doesn't exist. Don't pick pick a state that's mostly vowels, and <laughs> you you put a comedy club there. You put like five comedy clubs there because every every couple of nights you do a thing, and you get all blasted. And I I really think some of the hidden history of comedy is influenced by cocaine, and that's a thing Fetterman doesn't yeah, touch on. Eighties. The 80s was fueled by cocaine. And I think that's why you get the comedy bust, because by that, by the run of a, co- a good cocaine addiction, you're either dying off, sobering up, or it's just, yeah. it's your life now. Like, have you seen any comedy specials from the 80s? I feel like a lot of the men were very sweaty. Yes! And yeah. coked up out of their minds. Question, was Kevin James coked up for his Comedy Central special then? Because he was very sweaty. Probably. Maybe. I mean, it, it, and it's it's a performance-enhancing... My opinion is a performance... It's not my performance-enhancing drug, but somebody's. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Yeah, most of those guys were just gacked out of their minds. But what... The, the, the key transition is... And it shows in retrospect. Yeah, I kind of want to go back now. I probably will get want to throw my screen away as yeah. soon as they say something about women. But, you know, I'm pretty used to that yeah. with older comedy. Yeah, it's not good. It's like, well, how bad is this joke Because <laughs> I know it's not going to be good. How? But is there something like, ah, oh, you got me? Or we'd be like, okay, someone <laughs> murdered someone. Or going to murder someone. That's, that's why I had to stop listening to Hicks, because I was like, he's fucking teenage girls. Like, yeah. he, is, he is fucking 16-year-olds and happy about it, and not like... Anyway, yeah. anyway, those guys 
are the people that are coming together to form comedy clubs in the beginning, in the yeah. early 70s there parts. So, of Sweet course, things. yeah, they're not going to have the money for it, so it defaults to the people who do have money. People who own bars or clubs or that kind of thing and are there to make a profit way more than to present an art form. I think the comedy boom happens because a bunch of artists gacked out on whatever, have the energy and ambition to make it happen. But what ends up happening is capital sees it and it's like, oh, yes, because comedy is pretty decent labor exploitation. Yeah. Like, we stand there for an hour, we get whatever, and then they get everything off of the drinks and the sales and the doors. And And a thing he doesn't touch on, maybe he touches it on... And we're drug addicts, so we don't even want that much money. Yeah. I'm a drug enthusiast. (laughs) And, And so there's an incident, maybe he touches on it in the second season of his podcast. He didn't in the first. But there was a strike at the comedy store in 79-80. And what happens is um, Polly Shore's mom, oh, Mitzi, Mitzi Shore, is, is, is convinced that she's giving away opportunities. And, like, comics coming to her is her giving them a gift. So when you come and do a 20-minute set in the middle of a headlining show, like you have to be happy for that exposure. Not get that's, paid. Yeah, because that's going to get you on a Carson where you'll really get paid. Or or she'll pay you some super flat rate of like a hundred. That sounds like a local club owner. We know. Yeah, I mean that sounds like so many people that yeah. I actively work with in the comedy community. Yeah. But yeah. it has the reputation of being in the comedy store, so it's a big. It's it. Ne- it's never not selling tickets yeah. even while it's going on. And at the same time, it's it. Or if she's not, if she's not asking you to do it for free, it's for. A flat rate that yeah. isn't reflective of how the sales yeah. were of the night or how much is taken overall and doesn't necessarily reflect how much money you've probably spent at that club because yeah. they want you to buy drinks and food while you hang out and do your comedy. Like, they'll think you're being selfish if you fucking don't. Yeah. And so this is a, a really good analogy of this is available at history, comedyhistory101.com. But what happens is a former Teamster, Tom Dressen is like strike and convinces enough people to put on a comedy strike. And so comics are picketing outside. I think Jay Leno almost gets run over, like, which is, which couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Like, I mean, I kind of, but this is, I don't want to say, I want people to die, but we might've missed a lot of problematic things. But this is, this is the era of Jay Leno, David Letterman. We're going to see maybe, um, like, like maybe a very, very young early Mark Marin or something. I don't think him specifically now that I said out loud, but the, 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 the Letterman, Leno, maybe Steve Martin, but a lot of, a lot of people who would go on to become famous participate in this strike. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of why it's that weird thing that when you teach a liberal a trick, they're like, Oh cool. I'm going to apply it to capitalism. Like, Oh, Oh, and they solidarity sweet for me. Um, but Dresden convinces them to go on a strike and the strike works because like comedy is an art. It, it, it's a craft. It's a thing you have to learn to do. And meanwhile, she's like, well, I'll just put up a bartender to do 20 minutes. And the bartender's like, I, I'm good for one shot at a time, right? So there's eventually they succeed and they get like a percentage of the door. It becomes a standard of, of that place specifically. But what I think really happens is it gets enough news coverage. These other clubs in the country realize like, oh, we can fuck over comics. I didn't I didn't realize that, and it took a lot of effort for them to unionize in the place where they could have unionized. All right, fuck it, I'll screw them over. 
And so the whole motivation, again, becomes capital and profit. And I think that's where you create kind of the predatory environment that I I have always strongly felt existed. Because I feel like a lot of what stand-up comedy is, is... Is, is predatory. It's it's trying to feed off of other people's work and ambition and then use it to propel yourself to success. I know that's not necessarily exclusively what it is, but I think like if you want to air quote succeed in the modern function, it's, it's all adorable. it's right? it's all about how much money you make or how much money you make the club more importantly. Yeah. And that's why like when Louis C.K. pulls his shit, he gets to get away with it and no repercussion because well we book him and people keep showing up. There's no moral compass mm-hmm. to, to Well that's how capitalism works. That is exactly how capitalism works. Unless it's in capitalism's favor to take a moral stand. Yeah. And I my my genuine yeah, along with my worry. My my genuine worry is actually with the internet age. It makes it kinda easier to exploit us in a way that wasn't there before because now if we do, if, if that strike had happened, Mitzi could have just gone to YouTube and been like, Oh, I've found five people in LA with 20 minute jokes who aren't involved. Sweet. They'll be at my thing. They'll do it for, for, and I'll offer them enough to not be insulting or whatever. So there's a weird, but I would say on the flip side of that is that all of those comedians probably know each other and can easily communicate through the internet as well. But the way it's set so up... We have, a, we, have, we have just as much of that communication power, like you're saying. Sorry. No, you're fine. And I... I uh, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying think about it. No, that's fine. The, the, the part three, as it will be, um, I think... Yeah, that's most of the history. Because the most important thing after that really is kind of the fact that <clears throat> we've had an underground scene, but the underground scene has followed kind of that same... I guess, liberal mindset of you teach them a trick and they figure out how to profit off of it. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really important to point out about the club scene, especially, and when you're talking about it being specifically about making money, is that marginalized voices are only rewarded as long as they don't challenge that power structure. Yeah. So, in a lot of communities with marginalized folks, they're either going to have to enjoy someone like fucking all over who they are as a person uh-huh. so that the white straight people laugh about it or they just can't go at all. And so it really narrowed down what was considered acceptable comedy and what people would pay money to see. When in reality what we saw after the boom specifically in like things like alt scenes is that there's a lot more places for these unique voices. Yeah. Sorry, I was just thinking. No, you're about fine because that was going to be kind of my end point. Is is for for this episode? Uh, the, Good. The, the, I'm glad I the, stole the, your thunder. Well, no, is that the the roots of it? If it's if if we evaluate minstrel shows as the root, and the root being that it's middle class bullshit outrage at the wealthy and mocking the disenfranchised, or it's weird liberal messaging that's inaccurate and still equally disgusting, or it's marginalized people reenacting their victimhood. Because if they're smiling, everything's fine. And we come fucking a hundred and something years later, 200 years later, and it's pretty comfortable guys sort of mocking the rich, but definitely mocking the disenfranchised. Weird lib- liberals that have, I guess, great intentions, but horrible ideas and efficacy. And then poor and marginalized people who are like, all right, well, as long as I'm smiling, I guess it's fine. Maybe I'll break even out of this. Yeah. And it's like, if we want to recycle it, then we... 
that, that's the point of the next episode. It's going to yeah. be discuss ways I think we can recycle it. If I if I've made my case poorly of what the current morass of bullshit and situation is, that's why I have casts. <laughs> I don't believe in in being right. If I if, no, if there's I think, counter, I think you covered. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I feel covered. <laughs> I feel coded. Okay. Yeah. That was like a big old. History of comedy bukake. I have to pee again. Thank you for picking up recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.